Love. Love. How often do you hear that word used in your daily life? I don't know about you, but I hear this word love used all the time. My wife, multiple times throughout the day, every single day, tells me that she loves me. My kids always are telling me that they love me. My grandmother who raised me in East Texas, she sends me a text message every single night telling me that she loves me. Some of my favorite songs on the radio are about people expressing love for one another. Some of my favorite movies are about love. I hear people say things like I love football or I love basketball or I love baseball or pizza or hamburgers or I love to eat at a certain kind of a restaurant. Or I love to travel. Or I love to camp. Or hike. Or fish, or I like to shoot guns, or I like certain kind of cars, or I like to ride motorcycles, or I like my, or, or I love my dog, or I, or I love my cat. Why people would put the word love in the same sentence with a dog or a cat, I don't know. But I hear people say it all the time. I hear people say, I love all the time. People throw that word love around. All the time in our culture today, it seems to be one of those words that everybody knows what it means until you ask them to define it. And so let me just ask you this morning, can you define it? Can you define the word love? Can you define it as Peter is using it in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7? My dear friends, if your definition of love is the same definition that is given by the world, I want to suggest you, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. You see, here when Peter talks about love, he's not talking about how the world defines love. He's not talking about a mere feeling. He's not talking about an emotion. He's not talking about what we might see in a chick flick or a love story or how we might use the word to describe how we feel about cars and guns and camping and sports and our pets. No, here when Peter uses the word love, he's talking about something so much more. He's talking about something more than a feeling. He's talking about something more than an emotion. He's talking about the same kind of love that God has for us. He's talking about John chapter 3 and verse number 16. He is using the powerful Greek word agape. Many of you are familiar with that word, right? Many of you are familiar with the Greek word agape. You know that agape is the Greek word that is commonly used for love in the New Testament. In fact, this word is used about 115 times in the New Testament. It is used over and over and over again. And as I alluded to before, it involves more than than an emotion. It involves more than a feeling. Instead, it involves action. It involves doing something. It involves making the choice to be benevolent and affectionate and And selfless towards other people is the kind of love that is one directional. By one directional, I mean that agape love is not based on the response of another person. It is not based on the other person loving us back. It's not based on how another person feels about us. Instead, this kind of love leads one to actively 
seeking the best interest of another person, regardless of how the other person feels about us. This is a very powerful and challenging word given to us in the Bible, and I don't believe is good enough for us to merely recite what commentaries and Bible dictionaries tell us about this word. No, if we're going to grow to spiritual maturity and add Peter's list of spiritual ingredients to our faith, as we have been talking about in our theme this year, if we're going to do what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, then we're going to have to get practical. We're going to have to get real practical. We're going to have to see how to practically apply the spiritual ingredient of agape love into our lives. And let's just begin with God. Let's begin with God. How do we love God? How do we have agape love towards God? Well, I want to suggest that in order for us to understand what it means to have this kind of love towards God, perhaps we need to first understand what it means for God to have this kind of love toward us. How does God have agape love toward us? Well, please go in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. I hope you got your Bible with you this morning because there's going to be a lot of Bible in this sermon. Going to be a lot of Bible in this sermon, so I'm just trying to warn you ahead of time. If you have a hard time keeping up with me this morning, the outline is on the website, so you can get that there. But in 1 John chapter 4 and in verse number 8, in 1 John chapter 4, and in verse number eight, the Bible says the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. The word love that John uses there is agape. He's talking about agape there. He says that God is agape. God is love. What does the Bible mean when it says that God is love? When the Bible says that God is love, it means that God's nature is love. God's character is love. God is the source of love. God's actions are the ultimate expression of love. You see, if you want to know what real love is, if you want to know this morning what agape love is, you don't need to pull out a commentary and read the thoughts written by by a man. You don't need to go home and put out a pull out a lexicon or a vine's Bible dictionary. You don't need to use Siri and Google to help you out with this. No, all you got to do is all you got to do is look at God. All you got to do is look at what the Bible tells us about God over and over again. All you got to do is look at John 3 and verse 16. A well-known verse where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his only begotten son. John 15 and verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life. For his friends, Romans chapter five and verse number eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then are you still in first John In first John chapter three, verse 16, not John three, verse 16, but first John chapter three, verse 16. John says this. We know love by this. That he, referring to the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. These are just a small sampling of verses that talk about this issue. But I think you get the point. 
You get the point. You see where we're going here. You see that when it comes to God's love for us, it's more than a feeling. It's more than than, than an emotion. Instead, the scripture says God's love involves action. It involves doing something. It involves doing something for our benefit. It involves God seeing a need in our lives and then being benevolent towards that need. It involves God being selfless and sacrificial. God gave up something for us. God gave up something because he loves us. God didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he gave us what we needed. He gave us his best. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And that's different than the kind of love the world offers, right? The world doesn't know anything about that love. You see, the kind of world, the kind of love, rather, that the world offers is cheap. It's cheap love. It's love that is really nothing more than a temporary feeling. It is nothing more than merely an emotion. There's no sacrifice, no cost, no commitment. It is nothing more than personal gratification. That's the kind of love that the world offers us. But God, God is different. God's love is, is very different. God's love is the opposite. It's costly. It's sacrificial, it's active, it's giving us his son because he loves us at the highest level. That's the kind of love that God has for me and for you. And that's the kind of love we got to have for God. We got to have that same kind of love towards God. And I'm going in my Bible to Matthew chapter 22, please. In Matthew 22, remember Jesus. Jesus is asked by a Jewish lawyer, what is... The greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment in the law of God? And Jesus responds in this way. And Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. He says to him, Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Notice how the greatest commandment that we could ever obey in our lives is the commandment to love God. The commandment to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. Now, when Jesus says, this is where people often go wrong when they study this verse. When Jesus says we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, he is not suggesting that we spend the next 45 minutes slicing and dicing this passage up. He he's not suggesting that we make all kinds of distinctions between heart and soul and mind and waste our time trying to figure out what every part of that means. Instead, all the Lord is saying there is we need to love God with every fiber of our being. That's what he's saying. We need to love God with everything we possess. We need to love God with everything we are about. We must not hold anything back from God. We need to love God with every part of who we are. We don't just need to say we love God. We don't just need to tell our friends and our co-workers and our family members, hey, I love God. We don't just need to express our love for God with our mouths, but we need to love like God loves. We need to love with our actions. 
We need to love by doing. We need to love by sacrificing. We need to love by being obedient. And that's 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus offers a similar thought. In John 14 and verse 15, when Jesus simply says, If you love me, if you love God, you will you'll keep my commandments. Notice how if I truly love God, if I truly love God, then you know what I'll do? I'll obey God. I will submit to God. I will do everything that God tells me to do, even the hard stuff. I do even the difficult things. If things start getting rocky in my marriage, I'll stay committed to my spouse. I'll keep my vows. I won't tear apart what God has joined together. I'll forgive my brother when he repents. I'll worship God, not in the way that I desire and not in the way that just makes me feel good, but I will worship God according to what he has prescribed in his word. I will do Matthew 18 and verse 15. When a brother sins, when I notice a brother in sin, when a brother sins against me, I'm not going to go to the elders first. I'm not going to go to my spouse first. I'm not going to go to you first. I'm going to go to my brother first. And I'm going to pull my brother aside and talk with him in private and in love, try to urge him to repent. That's what I will do. And if I'm not a Christian, if I love God, I'll obey Mark 16, 16. I'll believe in the gospel and I'll be baptized for the remission of my sins because Jesus says so. Jesus commands me to do that when given the great commission. You see, if I love God, it's very simple. I'll obey God. I'll serve God. I will do everything God has told me to do because he first loved me when he gave me his son on the cross. That's what this kind of love looks like when it comes to God. But what about when it comes to our family? What about when it comes to the people we're closest to in our lives? What about when it comes to my spouse? How am I to have agape love towards my spouse? Will you go in your Bible, please, to the book of Ephesians? Will you go to Ephesians chapter 5? I'm taking you to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start reading with verse number 22. In Ephesians chapter 5, and in verse number 22. Paul says this to married people. He says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. For, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, he says, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. And then in verse 33, he says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, like in the case of of God. Like in the case of my love for God, Paul says that my love for my spouse is a choice. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a decision that goes far beyond just romance. It's a decision that goes far beyond buying some flowers and candy and and holding hands. No, the scripture says that if I'm going to love my spouse properly, then I got to imitate Jesus. I got to love like Jesus. I got to love my bride like Jesus loves his bride, which is the church. And so how does Jesus demonstrate love for his bride, which is the church? Well, remember, Jesus sacrificed for his bride. He sacrificed for his bride, the church, and I also got to sacrifice for my bride. I got to sacrifice my time for her. I got to sacrifice my pride for her. I got to be willing to say, I'm sorry, and please forgive me when when I mess up. I got to be willing to sacrifice my personal desires for her benefit and for her happiness. I got to sacrifice for my bride. And Paul also says, I got to nourish and cherish her. What does that mean? What does it mean to nourish my my wife? Well, well, typically when we when we hear that word nourish, we immediately think about feeding something, don't we think about feeding something? And certainly there are certain contexts where when the word nourish refers to feeding. But but here the Apostle Paul is talking about something more. In fact, the root word here for nourish is the idea of pampering. I have to pamper my spouse. I have to nourish her and then I got to cherish her. That word cherish that Paul uses there come from a comes from a word that means to warm. To warm. It's to draw somebody close to you in order to protect them. It implies gentleness and compassion and sensitivity. It means to be compassionate and sensitive towards the needs of my spouse. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to say kind words. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be compassionate. What I just want you to see is what Paul is driving here, what he's driving at here is love for our spouse involves some action. We got to do something we got to do for our spouse. All of the things that love demands. We got to be kind. We got to be patient. We got to be long suffering and sacrificial and caring. We got to be honest, unselfish. And when we say we forgive them for something, we really need to mean it. We really need to forgive them and not bring up the situation every time we get mad about something. We need to really have a agape love towards our spouse. And we also got to have this when it comes to our kids. Lots of parents in the room. Let's talk to the parents right now. What does it mean to have agape love towards my kids? Or are you still in Ephesians? Look at the next chapter, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Children, so for all the young people here, for all the young people here still in, the, in, in your parents' home, you're still under, under the protection 
and the supervision of your parents. Listen to what Paul says to you here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. For you young folks here, if you really want to have love towards your parents, you need to do some also. You need to obey them. You need to submit to them. Paul says you need to do that because it's right. It's almost like Paul is saying there, it's just common sense. It's just common sense that parents are over children. That should be common sense. And yet so often it's the other way around. It's the kids running the show instead of the parents running the show. That's wrong. That's out of balance. And Paul says here, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but do something. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Notice how, like in the case of my wife, loving my kids is more than just a feeling. It's more than just feeling nice and warm and fuzzy about them. I got to do something. I got to do something for them. In addition to providing for their physical needs, I, I got to provide for their spiritual needs. You see, if I truly love my kids, then I'm going to do my best to give them back to the Heavenly Father. I'm going to invest the time that is needed to teach them about God and to teach them about how to worship God and serve God and live the life of a disciple every single day. I'm going to spend time talking with them. I'm going to spend time trying to understand them better. I'm going to be active in every part of their lives. I'm going to know who their friends are, who they're hanging out with and what they're doing on social media. I'm going to do my best to protect their hearts. I'm going to protect the hearts of my kids. And when they get out of line, when they do things that are wrong, that are out of step with the rules of the house, that are out of step with the rules of God. I'm not just going to sweep that bad behavior under the rug. I'm not just going to ignore that and look the other way. I'm not just going to come up with all kinds of excuses for them and act like my kids are perfect and they can't do anything wrong. No, I will discipline my kids. I will discipline them. I will show them in love that there are consequences for bad behavior. That's how I show love for my kids. But I also got to have love towards you. I can't just have this kind of love for my wife and my kids. I got to have it towards you. I got to have it to, towards brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the love that we are to have for one another, this kind of love that we are to have for brothers and sisters, that may be emphasized more than anything else in the New Testament. And let me just give you a sample, if you don't mind. Look at John chapter 13. We look at the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13, then I'm going to take you to 1 John after this. But in John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said this. In John 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's a high standard of love right there, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice how one of the key things, one of the key ways in which the world knows that we're Christians, that we're disciples, is found in how we treat each other. It's found in, in, in whether or not we love each other according to the standard that Jesus has said. That's what Jesus says there. 
And I want to show you several verses in 1 John now. I mean, 1 John, John has so much to say about love in his writings. You ever noticed that before? Got a lot to say about love. And so we go to 1 John chapter 3, please. I want to give you some 1 John chapter 3. And please look at verse number 16. 1 John 3 and verse 16 says this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. There's agape love right there, action. It's all about action. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 7. And chapter 4 and verse 7 John says, Beloved, let us not or let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God shall love his brother also. Over and over again. Over and over again, God says, I want you to love each other. I want you to love each other like I love you. That's what God says. And if we want to know what that looks like in a practical way, all we got to do is go to 1 Corinthians 13, right? You know that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And there, the Apostle Paul spells out exactly what the kind of love we have for one another should look like. According to Paul, our love towards each other, it's patient. It leads to patience. And it's kind and it's slow to get angry and it doesn't get jealous and bitter when I see members of my spiritual family prospering in their lives. And it doesn't produce pride. And arrogance and it's not selfish and it doesn't rejoice when my brethren, when my brethren are doing unrighteousness. Instead, it rejoices when I see them obeying the truth. When I see them out of step with the will of God, if I really love my, my brother, I'm going to go to my brother. I'm going to go to them in love, even if they may get mad at me and try to help them get back on the right spiritual path. I'm going to do that because I love them. And if my brother does something kind of awkward. And I view it as kind of weird and maybe he initially rubs me the wrong way with something. If I have this kind of love in my heart, it's going to calm me down. It's going to calm me down. It's going to lead me to assume the best in whatever you're doing that's rubbing me the wrong way right now until there is legitimate reason to believe otherwise. What I just want you to see is like in the case of God. And like in the case of our physical family, the love we have for each other, the love we have for the spiritual family, it involves action. It involves doing something. It involves always seeking after the good and best interests of the spiritual family. I got to have this kind of love for my family. But I also got to have this kind of love for my neighbor, for my neighbor. 
Remember, Jesus is going to talk about that going back to Matthew 22. Go back to Matthew 22 again. And we're not done there with that. With Jesus answering that question given by that lawyer, he wants to know what's the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus. This is something that the Jewish teachers debated all the time. And so Jesus says in verse 37 that it's love God. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. But then in verse 39 of Matthew 22, he says the second is like it. It is equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Notice how Jesus says that in addition to loving God, a commandment that is equal to that is loving my neighbor. Loving my neighbor as myself. How do I do that? How, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Who even is my neighbor? Remember, there was a man in Luke chapter 10 who asked that question, did he not? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has a discussion with a, a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer. And Jesus tells him the same thing. This man acknowledges that the great, the great commandments are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yep, that's right. That's what the Bible says. But this man wants to justify himself. He wants to justify as to why he believes this question is not as easy to answer as Jesus making it out to be. And so he asked Jesus, OK, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus, this is not so easy. You're making this to be way too easy. This is not that easy. Can we really know who our neighbor is? And Jesus says, yeah, you can know who your neighbor is. You can know who your neighbor is. Jesus tells him a story, doesn't he? He tells him one of the most famous stories in the history of the world. He tells him a story about a man, a Jewish man, who's traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the way, along the way, he comes across some bad people, doesn't he? He comes across some people who beat him. They strip his clothes off. They rob him. They leave him to die. These people do this man wrong. And there are two of his Jewish brethren, one a priest and another a Levi, who see him in that desperate situation. And they don't do anything to help him. They turn the other way. They do not love him as a neighbor. They do this man wrong. But thankfully, there's another man who comes along. And even though this third guy is not Jewish, he doesn't come from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is actually part of a nation of people who the Jews cannot stand and they hate and they have a racist attitude towards this man. He doesn't ignore that Jewish man. He helps him. He sacrifices for him. He takes care of this man. He acts as a neighbor. He loves this man. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says we need to be like that man. We need to be like that Samaritan man who's the good guy in the story. We need to follow in his sandals. We need to understand that our neighbor is anybody who needs our help. Is anybody who needs your help. Is anybody you can be kind and benevolent towards? It's that co-worker who you see on the 202 with a flat tire that, that you can stop and give some help to. 
It's that neighbor whose grass that I can cut for them whenever they get sick. It's that waiter or that waitress who, even though they've messed up my order three times, I can be patient with them and still leave them a good tip. It's my kid's school teacher that I can send an email to thanking them for their service, thanking them for taking the time to educate my kids. It is the people who I personally know who are not Christians that I can invite to come here and worship God or at least sit down with me. And let's talk about Jesus. You see, like in the case of God and my physical and spiritual families, loving my neighbor involves action. It involves doing something. It involves actively looking for ways to bless them and help them, even though they're not part of God's family. We have to have this kind of love towards our neighbors, but we can't stop there. There's one more thing we got to put on this list because Jesus says we also got to have this kind of love towards our enemies. Our enemies. And when you go with me to Matthew chapter five, please. You, many of you know where I'm going. I'm going to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm reading the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. In Matthew 5 and verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he caused his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the pagans do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect. Now, when Jesus talks about perfect there, he's not saying living a perfect life, becoming a perfect person. That is not what the Lord is talking about in the context. In the context, he's talking about perfect love. Don't separate this from the context. He's talking about having perfect love. If you want to have perfect love, as your heavenly father is perfect or has perfect love. Let these verses soak in for just a moment. I want to suggest that what the Lord says here is no doubt the hardest part of agape love. This is the hardest part of what we're talking about this morning. I mean, this stretches love far beyond what we're comfortable with. It stretches it beyond God and beyond our neighbors and beyond the people that, that, that are easy to love in our lives. People like our spouse and our kids and our grandkids and our brethren. No, 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 no. Here Jesus stretches love beyond those people. He stretches love literally to everybody, to the people who love us and care about us and to the people who don't love us and they don't care about us. To the people who don't love us back, to our enemies. To the people who mock us. And they insult us and they ridicule us to the people who envy us and they're jealous of us and they want us to fail in our lives. To the people who just plain don't like us. And they're bullies. And they're always just giving us a hard time, even though we've done nothing wrong to those people. Jesus says we even got to love them. We even got to love our enemies. How in the world do we do that? 
How in the world do we do we love our our enemies? Well, one way in which we we love our enemies is by doing what Jesus tells us to do in these verses. We need to pray for them. We, we need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray that, that they will wake up and repent of their evil. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross for his enemies? Did not Jesus, while he was dying on the cross, pray for the people who were doing him wrong? We need to pray for our enemies. And you know what else we need to do? We need to do what Paul talks about in Romans 12. When you go to one more place in your Bible, when you go to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, after Paul says in verse 9, that love is to be without hypocrisy. What Paul means there. It's love is to be genuine. I don't need to tell you I love you this morning. Tell you I love you. Give you a hug. Shake your hand and gossip about you on the car ride on the way home. That's not love. That's hypocrisy. And Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. You see that? But drop down to verse 17. Because he goes on to challenge us when he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Believe room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Notice how loving my enemies involves action. I got to pray for them, but not just pray for them. Paul says I got to be kind. I got to be kind to my enemies. I got to seek peace with my enemies. I got to avoid going after personal vengeance and do good towards them despite what they've done to me. That's what I got to do, the Bible says. And let's just be honest about it this morning. Doing that is not easy, right? Is that easy? That's not easy. That's, that's, that's not easy at, at all. In fact, there are going to be many days in our lives when we don't want to do those things at all. And when those days come, we need to do two things. First, we need to get away from everybody we're around and go pray. We need to go pray. We need to pray, God, help me right now. God, help me love this unlovable person. God, help me do your will. God, please help me have perfect love like you. It's hard. When we struggle with this, we need to go somewhere and we need to pray. And then secondly, we also need to remember who we were before we became Christians. We need to remember that according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, before we became Christians, we were enemies of God and we didn't deserve his love. We didn't deserve his kindness. We didn't deserve his grace, his mercy or his compassion. You see, by requiring us to even love our enemies, God is not demanding that we do anything that he hasn't done first. He is not demanding that we do anything that he himself doesn't do every single day, every single day. There are billions and billions and billions of people across the globe who don't love God. And yet God still blesses them and he loves them unconditionally. We need to love like God. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And so 
as we wrap up Peter's ingredients for spiritual growth, notice where we are. Notice what we've accomplished. Since the month of February, we've added to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We have done these things over the last eight months. And now what we're going to do over the next four months is we're going to consider their results. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11 of this chapter. You see in verses 8 through 11 of this chapter, there are four things, four things that we can expect to happen to us when we add these ingredients to our faith. And so I'm looking forward to studying those things with you in October, November, December, and January. But for now, I want to close with this. I want to close just by asking you, do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? If you're not a Christian, do you love God enough to obey the gospel? Do you love God enough to obey Mark 16 and verse 16 and Acts 2 and verse 38 and believe and repent and be baptized? If you've sinned against God and you're a Christian, do you love God enough to repent and come back to him this morning? If there's anyone here this morning who needs to respond to the love of God and faithful obedience, come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing together.